0: Welcome to The Broadband Bunch, a podcast about broadband and how it impacts all of us. Join us to learn about the state of the industry and the latest innovations and trends. Connect with the thought leaders, pioneers, and policymakers helping to shape your future through broadband. The Broadband Bunch, as always, sponsored by ETI Software.
1: Alongside Pete Pizzatillo, Craig Corbin, the Broadband Bunch is back on the air from Mountain Connect in beautiful Keystone Resort in Colorado, and our special guest, Jeff Keblenski. Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, being a first-time
2: exhibitor at Mountain Connect. Our pleasure. Great to have you here. has been a great event. Thank you.
0: What's your, uh, your take on this year? What's the biggest thing that stands out in your mind?
2: Uh, well, you know, historically, the most important thing about this conference has always been about uh, our focus or my focus on tier two, th- three and four communities. OK. I think especially with with smarter technology coming into the fray, the you know, NFL cities are gonna, going to organically get the infrastructure they need just because of what they represent economically. So the help is really in the tier two through tier four communities and counties. So uh, you might have noticed the smart pavilion that we did this year. Yep. So that's uh, a first step of a multi-phase project where this year we have a home slash office and you can go in there and you can experience the smart technology, but also its impact on the network. And uh, next year we're going to expand that into a smart grid and then a streetscape. So my focus there is to help educate our our, uh, tier-through through tier four communities on what's coming and right. why, and why broadband's even more important than it was uh, f- three or four years ago. So we have to stop talking about why it's important, um, because in my estimation, um, technology innovation is not going to slow down and wait for broadband to catch up.
0: In one of the early panels, it was it was a really good thought about reframing the conversation around faster, cheaper internet into all the potential. Uh, you know, like smart cities that you were talking mm-hmm. about, and the smart homes, telehealth, you know, that's, that. this is really the backbone to enable all of those innovations, right? And I think it's Correct. a smart idea to help people kind of see, feel, and touch what that looks right. like, because it's all it's pretty novel, right? I mean, this stuff is hard to understand if you haven't seen it
2: before. Yeah, well, and as someone said this morning, you know, there's a lot of buzz, buzzwords around it. And I, I think it can be very confusing. And I wish we'd stop calling it smart city <laughs> and rather call connected communities or right. something along those okay. lines. Because that sort of implies that if you don't have the technology, that right. you're, you're a dumb city. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, and again, it's a very confusing space right now, especially with, if you throw 5G over the top of this whole discussion, uh, if you're a municipality, you don't have this kind of expertise, um, you know, within your administration, this is can be very daunting.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: That is the one thing that I think is a constant with most organizations that are evaluating going into broadband is the void of knowledge, working knowledge in this industry. And that's uh, something that I think uh, events like Mountain Connect are vital for getting them on the right path to start with because otherwise a lot of time, effort, and, and money can be wasted if they haven't made the correct choices up front, talk about how you have seen that uh, evolution since Mountain Connect came into being.
2: Well, one of the things, I could be wrong here, but I think I'm one of the only broadband conferences that's not industry specific to give equitable content to both wireless and wireline. I've always thought that that was very important, and we should be having discussions um, about hybrid infrastructure, especially out in rural communities. And I think it's interesting now that's kind of coming back full circle. Um, so I've always maintained this this equitable playing field for wireless, and so it's good to see that uh, even though it's being inspired by 5G, nonetheless it, it, it's still coming back up as part of an important and relevant conversation as it relates to building net, uh, building broadband networks.
0: You yeah, also think you've done a nice job constructing an event where perspective, broadband communities can come and see the whole gamut of services and equipment that's out mm-hmm. there, right? It's one-stop shopping essentially from the front end planning and design consulting firms to the fiber folks, to all the equipment manufacturers. Mm-hmm. And that's been a really great vision there. I mean, did, how many years have you been doing this now?
2: Uh, this is year six.
0: Year six? Yep. It's taken a while to get, I mean, what was the first year like? Do you remember all the way back then?
2: Well, I do. This Historically, this conference was built around our uh, Colorado's BTOP grant. And it was nearly focused on the impact to the Western Slope. So the gentleman who was putting it on was really a one-day seminar. Okay. So the year before I took it over, I said, there's so much more we could do at this conference. And he said, well, if you want to do something more of it, you take it over. <laughs> so I did. Um, and that year there were about 90 people. And so this year we have 500 and some odd people. So it's grown quite a bit. That's great. Yeah.
0: And you have a sister event coming up?
2: I do. So we. Was asked to replicate this model in the midwestern part, part of, uh, excuse me, midwest region of the country, and so uh, we uh, started Great Lakes Connect last year and did it in Ohio. And this year I'm, I'm moving it to Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, at the Abbey Resort, September 30th through October 2nd.
0: Great. Any plans to move to a Hawaii event or anything like that?
2: Uh, I'd love to. I'm afraid if I, I went there and did an event, I wouldn't leave.
1: That's the problem. So,
2: <laughs> you
3: brought
1: me in there too, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: I know that it has to be rewarding uh, both professionally but personally for you to see how this event has grown and how the municipalities in particular that have embraced the opportunity to, to get into to this world have begun to thrive because that's what uh, is impressive to me and rewarding is to see what a difference it's making in the, the day-to-day existence and the lives of so many people. Talk a little bit about that. Well,
2: so I'd like to go back and refer to content. I think content, as you might guess, is is so key to these conferences. And if, if like I said earlier, if we're still talking about why broadband is important in terms of the content being presented here, uh, we're doing a disservice to the communities. And so you always have to stay a step ahead. And it's, it's really interesting to me to see how uh, the content that I've put together has evolved over the last six years. You don't see anything close to what we were talking about even three years ago so I'm trying to keep this education uh, relevant for what's going on today but also looking forward because I think if you're not looking forward you know you could be in for a lot of trouble so you
0: mentioned 5g earlier uh-huh. I mean so what would what would be your um, advice to municipalities and how to think about 5g today?
2: Well, I first of all, I'd hire a good lawyer. Um, <laughs> I, I understand the uh, you know the FCC rules on what you can and cannot do. Um, be really concerned about aesthetics, and really try to enforce colo facilities on poles. Otherwise, you're going to have um, or any municipal owned asset. I mean, despite the despite the uh, federal rules around this, the, it's still your right away. Right. And so I think. You have to be very cognizant of what's being put in your right away, and how how does that going to impact your city? So, if we have all four carriers putting infrastructure one right after another, what might that look like? Or sure. How might it impact your citizens? And you know, aesthetically, it's not going to be very pleasing, right? So, so other than Mountain
0: Connect, what else do you do for a
2: living? Um, I am the director of, uh, uh, of uh, emerging technologies for Foresight Group. Okay. So, um, I. I basically, I run our BD efforts around the country. Um, also help to manage, uh, we're, we're starting up a, a smart uh, a technology master planning consulting service. So busy, busy trying to s- uh, stand that up as well. So we've got a lot of interesting things going on. Foresight's a, a full service engineering firm. So um, on, the, uh, on the network side, we're, obviously we, we engineer, we design engineer networks. Okay. And then we have a wireless division as well. And historically, they have focused on structural wireless engineering. But we also have a tower company now. So, and, then, and then we do civil engineering as well. So we kind of do it all. Do it all.
1: Well, this has been a blast to chat with you. Uh, just wanted to commend you before we wrapped up uh, the uh, array of speakers that you assembled for this event. Phenomenal, yep. uh, every oh, single one, just uh, fantastic. I really enjoyed going through the, the website, looking at the, the bios of everyone that uh, you've assembled, so uh, hats off thank you. with uh, with your job there. We greatly appreciate you taking time. We have been joined by uh, <laughs> Jeff Kavlinski, the uh, uh, CEO of Mountain Connect and also Great Lakes Connect. Correct. Indeed, thanks for being with no, us. No, thank
2: you for having me.
0: Thanks, Jeff. Thank appreciate you. it. Great show.
1: Broadband Bunch continues from Mountain Connect 2019. So glad to be joined by Kat Blake, Senior Program Manager with Next Century Cities. Welcome. Thank you for having me. It has uh, been a great event. I think uh, your uh, quick thoughts about Mountain Connect 2019.
4: Yeah, absolutely. This is my first Mountain Connect, but I've heard great things about the conference, and it's been great to connect with all the good folks doing work in this region.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The Broadband Bunch is happy to, to have such uh, a uh, well-known speaker. You were part of a panel earlier in the event. Uh, tell us about that experience.
4: Sure. So I presented Next Century City's Becoming Broadband Ready Toolkit. Uh, yesterday, and hosted a panel discussion with a couple of community leaders about best practices for community connectivity.
1: I know most people are aware of Next Century Cities, for those that don't, give us a quick 30,000 foot uh, overview and background.
4: Sure. So, Next Century Cities is a, a nonprofit, nonpartisan membership organization. And our members are cities, towns, and counties. So we work directly with over 200 municipal governments across the country, and we work with them specifically on issues of broadband access and adoption.
0: Do you have a good sense of the maturity of those 200 organizations or municipalities and where they are in that journey?
4: Yeah, um, absolutely. So they're all across the board. Okay. Um, So we have cities that uh, are struggling uh, to get DSL. Uh, We have cities that are fully built out with municipal networks. Um, We have metro regions that have a lot of competition, um, so they're really all across the map.
0: And how did you get involved in this? What's your backstory?
4: Yeah, um, so I first got involved with, uh, I first got interested in the idea of connectivity and the digital divide actually when I was in school at the University of Virginia, um, studying media studies, and uh, we talked a lot about Uh, the impact of different media on society. And then I took a media policy and law course and learned about the fact that a lot of Americans don't have broadband access. And I was kind of like, hey, doesn't that change a lot of the conversations we've already been having about um, the effects of media if a lot of folks can't get online and can't have access.
1: Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about the, the main guiding principle of Next Century Cities.
4: Sure, so we have uh, six guiding principles of Next Century Cities. Um, One of them that guides a lot of our work is the idea that communities must enjoy self-determination. So we're a big believer that there's no one-size-fits-all model for connectivity. I already mentioned that of our 203 members, they're diverse in their levels of connectivity. They're also diverse in terms of their geography, um, in terms of their size, in terms of their political makeup. Um, an inclination, so we don't think that there's one model that is going to be able to successfully connect any city. There's no out-of-the-box solution. So we are big proponents of local choice and we think that communities should be able to evaluate the different options that are available to them and pursue the one that makes the most sense for them.
0: And is that what led to the toolkit that you mentioned earlier?
4: Yeah, that is exactly what led to the toolkit. So our toolkit, um, the Becoming Broadband Ready toolkit, um is really designed as a one-stop resource for local leaders who want to encourage broadband access in their communities so what we did was we looked at best practices across our hundreds of members and while their their solutions are different there are best practices that kind of run through each of these successful models so while one community might be building a municipal network and one might be working with an incumbent, there are still um, local ordinances and policies that are very effective no matter what your network model is. And there are still things like community engagement that are, going, uh, that are going to be important no matter what. Right.
0: And What do you think is the biggest misconception or fear that you hear from the municipality leadership as they're getting started on this journey?
4: Um, I don't know about misconception, but I would say that in general cities are pretty risk adverse, and and I think that that's Uh, A big part of the process of thinking through what model is going to work well for you is you want to make sure you have evaluated um, the market demand in your community and that you know what your community's appetite for risk is and appetite for investment is. So I don't know if I would say misconception, but I think that that idea of risk and any city that's starting out with a broadband project, they want to make sure they uh, have all their ducks in a row, for lack of a better term.
0: But it, you know, one of the interesting themes I hear is that if you haven't started in the municipalities planning for broadband, you're you're already behind, right? So there is the risk of doing nothing. I mean, how do, how how can we help people understand that there has this choice has to be, you know, brought to the conversation within all all municipalities?
4: I think a big part of that is understanding that broadband access is not just a conversation that should be happening in your IT department. But it's a conversation that should be happening um, with your economic development team, with your school district, um, with workforce development, uh, and the local economy. So I think you know, even if you're not if you're not planning for the future uh, with broadband, uh, you are going to fall behind. Uh, and I also think that what you touched on a good point, which is that you don't necessarily have to be working on a full network build to be doing something about this. Um, You can do something like put in a local dig once policy and you get a little bit of fiber in the ground here, a little bit of conduit in the ground there, and you're still making progress towards uh, a more future-proof community.
1: The Broadband Bunch is visiting with Kat Blake, senior program manager with Next Century Cities. I know that uh, your membership, very diverse, That means a lot of different solutions. Talk about how that might be a challenge for the services that Next Century Cities provides.
4: Sure, so I think a way that that we combat that as a team is we talk to our communities. Um, We're on the phone with our communities all the time. We try to get out on the road as much as possible. Um, And I think that's what sets us apart as an organization is that local involvement and local engagement. Um, We try to stay up to date with what our communities are doing and talk to them about the challenges that they're facing and also what has been successful.
0: Yeah, I think also I heard a conversation earlier about reframing the conversation broadband away from faster, cheaper internet. Right, a lot of the conversations dominated about Comcast or the big. The big ones are expensive, or I don't have access to them, or I can't afford to have access to them, and and shifting into more about innovation and openness and how openness leads to innovation. That innovation and just maybe a little bit disruptive, but it's it's the facilitation towards growth, right? As and an outcome of that is more affordable bandwidth at the back end. So are you guys having that conversation? Are you trying to help them think outside? Like you said, outside the box, it's beyond just getting Netflix for cheaper.
4: Yes. So I think you're, you're completely correct that, um, this isn't necessarily a cheap or an easy solution. I think if it were, we wouldn't have this problem. We wouldn't need a conference to talk about how we can connect America. Um, Taking on a a broadband project is not easy for any community. It is a big investment. It can be risky, Um, but I think that our communities know that they have to do this now in order to prepare for the future. And it's a bigger risk to not do anything.
1: You talked earlier about what drew you into this opportunity with Next Century Cities. Given the time that you've spent as part of the team, has it been personally, as well as professionally rewarding for you?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I I got involved in this because of classes that I took um, that sparked my interest initially. But getting to work directly with local communities has absolutely furthered that. And I would say of all of the hats that I wear at Next Century Cities, one of my favorite parts of my job is when I get to talk to a community on the phone for an hour, um, whether it's to write a blog or or otherwise, or solve a problem. Um, Getting to hear about the work that they've done has been incredibly interesting and inspiring to me.
0: Yeah, and that's what I notice a lot around this this community is the people in the community are real patriots or citizens, and people like yourself are also very patriotic and and citizen-oriented, which is refreshing. So thank you for having that mentality and not being all about the Mighty Buck. Absolutely. What a concept. Yes.
1: For those who want to find out more about Next Century Cities, how best would they do that?
4: So you can go to our website, which is nextcenturycities.org. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Our Twitter handle is Sit. I like it. nextsentsit
1: <laughs> Next, Next, si- it. Next it.
4: Century Cities was taken. Wow. Can't...
1: Can't thank you enough. I yeah, uh, appreciate Kat it. Ken Blake, Senior Program Manager with Next Century Cities. Greatly appreciate you being part of the broadband bunch. Yep. Thank
4: you for having me.
0: Thanks for joining us.
1: Broadband bunch continues from Mountain Connect, and I'm pleased to be joined by Mark Guillen, the Public Affairs Manager with Crown Castle. And Mark, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, it's been a great event. What are your thoughts?
5: It's been fantastic. Uh, you know, typically since we're a wireless provider, we we don't come to the broadband. But I think things have converged finally, and so in many of the sessions, we've continued to talk about you know how wireless fits
0: into that whole broadband service. So
5: it's been very good.
0: Maybe you can uh, give us a little background on what Crown Castle does, and that way uh, we can help everybody understand the context
5: that you're coming from. Sure, so uh, Crown Castle, Crown Castle's been in business since 1994, and what we do is we provide um, shared telecommunication infrastructure. So what that means is we have three sides of our business. We're building towers, We are also building the fiber network that um, the towers work with, and most recently, we've been focused on small cell. So small cell, is we call it small because they're small antennas that will be placed um, closer together than towers, and that will be what the backbone for the coming technologies like 5G will be built upon.
1: It's mind-numbing when you look at the projections for the infrastructure required for 5G to come into Mm -hmm. reality help us understand the scope of what you guys are dealing with.
5: Yes, yeah, so so you're right, the industry is rapidly changing. So, you know, previously, like, you know, we, we deal with a lot of the carriers, so, you know, when 3G and 4G phones were out, you know, the infrastructure was built to handle those things, and so, as you would know, 4G is uh, what kind of brought in the avenue of using your phone to watch videos and to connect to the internet, so that was a, that was a very big change. That, was a paradigm change that changed many business models and many things, and so now we're at the avenue of five G. So yeah, you know, it's not only that use and demand is growing, but the future will hold a number of different applications that we don't even know are coming. We call them IoT, Internet of Things, right. and those could be you know your watches, those can be your you know your iPad, it can be your refrigerator, it can be the ring and your front door. So I mean those applications will grow tremendously. They say that within the next three years, there will be five billion additional IOTs that come in. And so that's why we're building 5G, because it's it's a capacity issue that, you know, we're, we're basically at capacity now. Building a more robust infrastructure will help to. Accommodate all of those new applications.
0: So on 5G, Verizon came out and they wanted to be first with a 5G network, and you see Sprint with their announcements in 30 cities. You know, so the big carriers are coming out in incremental steps. That's right. What is the time frame around min- municipalities? How do you see that playing?
5: Well, um, so you know, as we so Crown Castle is building those out for the carriers, and so we've identified a, a number of cities about 10 that, um, you know, have been identified because of the population density and also because of the data usage and the demand, and so we're building those out now. Um, We we perceive that most of those will be fully built out at the end of this year. Wow. Incidentally, that'll also be when uh, many of the phone carriers will drop their new 5G phones, and so, you know, that's kind of what's driving this. but the reality is, is that um, you know when we work with municipalities, it's become different because there's a patchwork of ordinances that kind of uh, you know oversee the deployment, and it is not friendly to the rapid deployment of the new technologies, and so that becomes a concern because this is a global race to building those infrastructures, and so as a country we don't want to fall behind, and so you know, we've been working really hard, you know behind the scenes to really kind of facilitate. Um, policies that help to address that either statewide or federally so that we can have that, you know, robust deployment that everybody is comfortable with.
1: And when you talk about the installation of infrastructure for 5G, there are many schools of thought on the minimum fiber count that's required to accommodate all the volume mm-hmm. that inevitably will, will come. Uh, give us your thoughts on what you have heard and what you uh, are seeing with current deployments. Sure.
5: So, um, uh, you know, this is one of the things that's been talked about at this convention today: is that, you know, broadband traditionally has been the vehicle to deliver services to municipalities and to households. Um, and it, it, it's been okay, and, and most recently, you know, they're realizing that it may be at the end of its. You know, term of of delivering services because capacity for them is about 10 gigabytes. The reality is, is very, very soon the demand will be at the 50 and 100, and you just can't do that over copper. And so, this is why fiber now becomes very important because fiber, you know, when we build it out, um, it, much greater than 100 gigabytes. I mean, we're talking 500 and even greater. Um, you know, that again, working with different technologies like the radio, the, the wireless radio, as that comes in, you know, those will facilitate even more and more. And, you know, the fiber is great because, you know, as the technology evolves, so, you know, let's say 6G, 7G, 8G at some point, um, the fiber will be able to accommodate all that. So it'll just be a matter of changing the radio and the technology on top of a pole or on a strand
0: um, that, that will be easily changed. I think people are, are confused about the bandwidth, right? And they say, "I'll never need a gig, right?" And but I saw an interesting graphic where it's not that you're not a gamer and you need all that real-time, um, zero latency, but it's really all the incremental smart devices that you're starting to accumulate, right? The watch, Alexa, Absolutely. your TV, and it's a, it's a, it's a megabyte here, it's a megabyte, and then if you look at that cumulatively, then that starts to become what's consuming the bandwidth, and then then the performance issues become, the frustration sets in. right? Yeah. And it sounds like the community's trying to get ahead of that problem that's growing. Absolutely, and so you know those, those kinds
5: of questions are what really drive the economics of building the infrastructure. So the implication is that, okay, so let's say the millennials or the younger generation, they're going to use more bandwidth and data than say uh, somebody of an, uh, you know, an older demographic. But the reality is, as 5G comes in, and we talk talking about delivering healthcare via the internet, as we um, talk about you know doing remote surgeries or you know emergency locations for for people who fall in in their home, and even for um, aging in place, which is you know the optimal way to age. The bandwidth for the use of that it will become extreme, and so this is why you know this is a technology for everyone. And so you know, we're trying to serve those needs that are certainly, certainly going to come.
1: We are visiting with Mark Guienne, the public affairs manager with Crown Castle. Uh, this is such a, a fast evolution when we talk about the, the growth and the expectations that come along with 5G, knowing that you're working with uh, existing providers, putting in the, uh, the small uh, cell towers and the infrastructure along with that. Any concerns with being able to keep up with the demand for that? Well, before
5: I get to that, you know, so the, one of the things that we battle mostly is talking about the technology. So, yes, traditionally towers were, were how we delivered um, services, and so, the next generation is the small cell. Now, just like you did, sometimes people say small cell towers. Well, it's not a tower; it's a very small unit that's on top of the public right of way. So, I just want to make sure that we understand that. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. And what, so, what's driving that that architectural decision? Is it is it you know why why didn't we use those before? So, so with the
5: towers, traditionally, they were very good at um, providing uh, data that would carry. Talking and text okay. okay at very long distances, so you know we 're talking two to three miles from a tower you could receive the service, so as we 're talking about faster lower latency, you know higher capacity that that now is at a different sort of bandwidth, and that bandwidth does not travel very far so we 're talking about like maybe five hundred to a thousand feet from the small cell, and so in essence, in order to have good, robust coverage, you have to put them in, you know, closer locations. So it's a much tighter talk. matrix. Absolutely, and so and so that's what's driving this. So the the reality is that there has to be multiple um, deployments, and that, and that and for going back to the municipalities, that's that's really the issue. It's not that they don't want it. It's not that they think it's bad. It's that they don't. They're not set up to. Process the number of permits to do this. So traditionally, a tower would be one permit that would go through a process. You know, recently it's been five or six small cell applications. Now we're talking about like say in a municipality like Los Angeles, five to six thousand applications. Wow. So there's a, there's a, a real learning curve of how do we how do we create a process that works for everybody in a timely manner.
0: But uh, you know, internationally, 5G is being funded well in Europe, right mm-hmm. in China and in India, you know what's different between what they can do and what we can do to start rolling out
1: much quicker.
5: So, so uh, I'd like to say that um, um, the United States is a, a little bit more thoughtful in how they roll out their infrastructure. You know, we have infrastructure like nowhere else in the world, really. And so, places like China, when they want to deploy, you know, that's that's a federal government decision, and they just roll it out that doesn't happen here because there's you know individual states who control certain aspects of what we're doing and then the municipality also controls things like aesthetics and location and things like that so there's a there's a more uh, a detailed process that needs to go through when we do it you know by municipality municipality this is why uh, things like state legislation and federal legislation become helpful because then everybody's on the same playing field and then that helps for deployment.
1: You just touched on something that I think is interesting with regard to aesthetics and the fact that with the small cells and that, that type matrix that's required, how much diversity will you have or can you have in what the small cells look like?
5: Oh absolutely, so this is actually one of the things that Crown Castle has worked very, very hard jurisdictionally is to sit down and actually have a conversation about the aesthetics. So we take in you know consideration when we're going to deploy in a historic area, mm-hmm. we want to be able to match the existing infrastructure that's there. So you know if we're going to build a new light pole, we want it to look like what's already there. Okay, I mean, but there's a gamut of things. You know, sometimes we just put up a pole with an antenna on top, and for it's it's appropriate for that area. And then there's other places like say close to the um, the ocean shore where they want something that looks like um, a. a palm tree right and for instance here in Denver we often deploy um, pine tree um, infrastructure and so it really just depends it's really important it's that we can do a variety of things and that we also have that discussion of what's appropriate for your jurisdiction
0: can we get a palm tree one I don't (laughs) think that would be appropriate for (laughs) this jurisdiction (laughs) you mentioned about the federal and the state legislation aligning is it not aligned at this point in time Um, well I, that, that's a pretty big blatant
5: statement. There, there are many places in in the states that um, have adjusted their ordinances to align with the FCC. Um, but there are other places um, who there's been some resistance. You know, we're we're um, you know who are considering maybe changes to the FCC order. And so you know, those are the difficult places that we are trying to walk through. You know, what is a good ordinance for this area? you know, how can we help that to be as closely aligned to the FCC and and then also talking about, you know, the cost the cost of attachment, the cost of fees to process, you know, those all become in play when we talk about changes to that.
1: It's been fantastic. Um, Obviously there are uh, going to be changes at light speed, if you will, going forward. Um, Crown Castle, I know, is well equipped to handle that. Talk about, from your perspective, what you've seen in your tenure with Crown Castle and their ability to evolve so quickly with the expectations.
5: Exactly, so you know that's that's probably been, um, you know, the our ability to adapt has been the key to our success in the last few years. So um, just some some metrics about our company. So like I said we have three parts of our, our business and so towers, we're, we're at 40,000 towers across the nation. Um, for um, fiber, we're at seventy thousand route miles of fiber, and um, you know now we have sixty-five thousand small cells, but that small cell number is rapidly growing, and so so you know we, we have all three. Um, now that's not to say that there are some companies that provide just tower service, right. just fiber, just broadband. The the, the great thing about um, a crown is that we we can provide all three for them to work together. In addition, to that our key is that we co-locate um, clients on one infrastructure. So rather than popping up a, a whole bunch of infrastructure along the public right of way, we put up one or two or three, and then we co-locate many carriers on that. That not only lowers the cost of the carrier, but it, it really helps us when we have multiple ten- and tenants. And
1: maximize on. the real estate. Yeah, we
5: do. Yeah, and so that's been a real success for our growth and for the success of the company.
1: Great. Hey, we greatly appreciate you being with us. A big thanks to Mark Gian, the Public Affairs Manager with Crown Castle, a special guest here on the Broadband Bunch. Thank you very much. Yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. From Mountain Connect, the broadband bunch back on the air and pleased to be joined by Dan Fleming, co-founder of Render Networks, one of the more innovative companies to come on the scene of late. Welcome, Dan. Thank you,
3: Craig. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. Absolutely.
0: And how's the event going for you so far?
3: Uh, It's great. We're sort of coming to grips with the altitude first (laughs) up in the mountains, but uh, it's really exciting to be here. We're from... Originate in Melbourne, Australia. So to travel all this way to Colorado to a, to a uh, an event like this, we've found it extremely interesting. And uh, there's some really good thought uh, thought leadership in the industry here. It's been great.
0: Any uh, any observations in terms of the international difference between what's going on in Australia and the U.S.?
3: Uh, I think that I, I think the focus on rural broadband and the the impact of the funding here on on the willingness for people to invest really um, is a big difference between between australia and the us Um, and i think the willingness to innovate here is is really refreshing great so uh, there's similarities clearly because the industries are very similar but the attitude and the and the, uh, the willingness to do things differently is really refreshing. It's great to see.
1: Render has been around since 2013, 2013. and uh, I think part of the thinking was that you were looking to eliminate the complexity and drastically improve efficiency in the process of installing fiber.
3: That's correct, uh, and, and a lot of it, I think, was was driven a bit by my background. I, I, I'm a 20-year telecommunications industry person, but prior to that, I was involved with large-scale construction projects, and I think we find ourselves at the moment delivering different types of networks, and by that I mean, we're building large networks from scratch. We're not growing networks organically, and that brings a different challenge for the people that have traditionally delivered networks. Suddenly, you're building across an entire area let's say as an example, to 50,000 new premises in three years, not 50 years. And our observation globally is that that challenge is often underestimated. And yeah, Render Networks has come up with a new way of approaching that challenge.
1: When you look at the ways that you've done that, um, from what uh, I've seen and observed, you're making a tremendous difference on the bottom line with uh, optimizing resources and manpower.
3: Absolutely. I mean, If we look at the scale of network that's being deployed, there's a lot of capital money required to build these things. And anything that that can be done to make people more productive and therefore deliver efficiencies obviously makes sense. So what we're trying to do at Render Networks is simply put, make people more productive. And even more simply, if I traditionally do four things in a day but using smarter technology, I do five or six things in a day, then suddenly I'm 15, 25, 30% more efficient. And if this project goes for two years, I mean, there's an obvious impact of that. So, so yeah, our, our, our approach is to, to think a bit differently, use technology to make people more efficient. And, uh, and, and when I say people, it's all stakeholders in the project. So, yeah, that's the approach to make people more efficient every day.
0: Can you uh, can you give us some insight into what um, what you are actually doing from a technology innovation?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, these these networks are complex in their scale. They're not that complex in what they are. So, it, an, an example: I'm building a fiber to the home network to 50,000 subscribers. I'm doing thousands of things over and over again, and it all starts with a design. That design is takes a lot of effort to produce and it's very detailed. Traditionally, what happens when design is pushed into construction, the level of detail that's in the design is not often utilized during construction. So what we do is we, sort, we have this fundamental idea that said, hang on a minute, why don't we use the design to generate the work tasks? Gotcha. And so now we very simply describe the work task directly from the design in a, in a way that's never been done before. Really cool. Does that makes sense? Yeah. So basically we, had, we come up with a whole list of instructions that if you've digitally got that available, now you can push it to tens of, scores of, or hundreds of resources, utilizing some smart technology, mobile devices, real-time visibility of data, that in the traditional construction approach, it was more construction prints that people need to analyze and they'll write down in a red pen what they did. Right. There's lots of paper handoffs. So,
0: so is that a closed loop system? So once the task is completed, it feeds back and then you can track kind totally. of work to work to completion and all that other good Absolutely.
3: stuff. And uh, real-time visibility of data, uh, capture the data once, feed downstream systems such that there's no manual handoffs. Um, and we also link those tasks together again simplistically if I need to splice some cables together don't send the splicer there until you know the cables are installed so that sequencing is part of the Yeah, dependency driven yeah yeah. absolutely so yeah it's it's cool smart project
0: management I like it
3: that's it that's it and uh, we focused on the construction component of the network so we're very targeted on let's build this thing as quickly as possible and once it's once it's built we hand off that good geospatial data um, into platforms maybe like ETI, so uh, that sort of software. So, yeah, we're very focused on the construction, and uh, data is the key for us.
1: Give us a comparison from 30,000 feet between the market in Australia and what you're experiencing here in the States.
3: I think the market in Australia, it's, I mean, clearly it's way smaller, but it's, it's dominated by a small number of larger organizations, and... As opposed to here, where there's there's thousands of smaller organisations, and we're in Australia far more heavily regulated, and and have much fewer options in terms of competition, and I think importantly in, in today's in today's uh, focus on this cooperative market, we don't have a similar situation in Australia. So the the opportunity here to help lots of small companies do what they need to do, possibly who haven't done fiber rollouts before is really exciting for us so there's actually a big difference in the market for us for that reason there's lots of there's lots more operators here trying to do the things that a handful in Australia protect for themselves if you understand what I mean. yeah
1: I'm curious what reaction you get when you're working with clients and given the um, uh, the economy that uh, that you yield Using the map-based visualization uh, and the better use of resources, cutting the the anticipated time frame substantially from when they expected the build to last to what you're seeing with with Render Networks, what kind of response are you getting from your clients?
3: Uh, very positive, thankfully. <laughs> very positive. I, I, if you look at what we do, we are different, so the customers that have They've sort of taken a chance on us because they've sort of seen some innovation. So there is a there is a willingness for them to do things differently, and I guess an expectation that it's going to yield some results. Um, but certainly, the, the 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 reaction when you simply do what I said—you you, you change the output of a resource in the field from four to six—and you do that consistently—they when they feel that and they see that—it's uh, yeah, we, we're, it's it's obviously very positive. I I
1: liked one of the um, um, the lines on your your website it's all about keeping boots on the
3: ground absolutely keep boots on the ground busy and and it to what we try to do is is very efficiently capture data in the field I mean traditionally a crew doing things out in the field they work most of the day but they spend quite a bit of their day documenting what they did and doing a whole lot of mm, not very productive paperwork so our solution has no paper in it. So we have no paper, so we're, we're a fully digital um, solution. So immediately we've eliminated paperwork. But we've also, in doing so, just given people more productive time in their day. Right. And it's, just, it's pretty obvious the results. I, I would
0: that. also add accuracy too, right? I mean, as things are designed and as they're implemented is a, is a difference, right? And being able to capture that and immediately have a full understanding of where everything is laid and how it was, how it was deployed. Is it, I think, are going to be a big difference when, you know, a year and a half later when there's a shift in, the, you know, the municipality or, or the organization that was managing it and that knowledge is gone, right? Absolutely. I
3: mean, I think the map-based approach, I mean, in today's day and age, we expect to see things on a map. We, we want to see it on Google Maps. Yep. And we want to see what happened. Uh, our company is called Render Networks. And there's a little bit of, bit of meaning in that. I mean, effectively what are you doing we're rendering the delivery of this project in an image which is a map right so you can sort of see where it's coming so yeah the the ability to go back and and really understand the geospatial characteristics of the work as it relates to this design that's going to deliver services for customers it's yeah it's um, one of the big benefits of doing it the way that we do We
1: were visiting with Dan Fleming, co-founder of Render Networks here on the Broadband Bunch from Mountain Connect. I know that uh, the company has been in existence since 2013. How long did it take to knock out the development of your software once the, uh, the genesis for Render
3: Networks came about? That's a very good question, Greg. Thank you for that. <laughs> um, I, I think that the idea in itself is very is, is, is simple but it's almost obvious. Of course you would turn the design into work. So to get something stood up that did that was quite quick for us in the order of sort of six months, six to six to nine months. But one of the, one of the differences perhaps in Render Networks compared to other organisations, the founders have a very strong understanding of, of the problem that needs to be solved. And we've got really good software developers to, to deliver that. So really to get, to get to where we are today has taken five years, it's taken quite a few mistakes. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot of industry knowledge and bruising uh, uh, and those sorts of things. It's, it has taken five years to get to where we are today.
0: Are, are you developing – I could see a lot of things coming off of that, the value of that information. One, being able to optimize construction plans or project management plans, but also becoming templatized, right? So if you're a new organization not having to start from scratch and, and using – the, last, you know, the best practices from the previous similar or mo- best fit, I guess, examples to jumpstart my planning process. Is that what you guys provide? Absolutely,
3: so we're a software company predominantly but we're also a services company and the services that we provided to do exactly that. Okay. When you first end up the project, you have no experience. We bring to you, um, we can bring you a, a template that says, look, this is how we've done it in the past. We're looking at the architecture of our network, this is what we think will be appropriate. So 100 we, we, percent we bring to the table with new customers a starting position, Great. but but everyone's different and there are there are local nuances and there are architectural differences and 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 that needs to be taken into consideration. I think these these projects are bespoke enough that it warrants the effort up front. To make sure that the platform that's being delivered suits my specific needs Certainly. as a customer, so that's part that's absolutely, and I think that's that's a that's potentially a differentiation between us and, and other off-the-shelf software. In this instance, off-the-shelf is is you, you you probably compromise some of the functionality to make it directly off-the-shelf, and uh, and yeah, no, so that, that's that's part of what we do. That's great.
1: Well, the company is based in Australia. You do have a foothold here in the States. Absolutely. How do people learn more about render and get in contact with your team?
3: Uh, we've, got, we've got a, a, a base now in, in Denver, Colorado, which is absolutely fantastic. And we have uh, local VP of sales here. And obviously as our as our work here grows, we'll grow with it. Um, our website is what you would expect, rendernetworks.com. Um, there's, there's easy ways to get in contact with us there, and that's the best way to do it. Very good. Thank you.
1: Greatly appreciate your time. Appreciate it. Dan Fleming, co-founder of Render Networks. Great. Thank you.